um, give you a minute to think before we start, okay? Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather here um, to meet with you. I pray, Lord, that you would do that. By faith, we, we woke up this morning. Um, we can't force you to meet us, but we do ask and plead that you would. And uh, may you reveal yourself to us in a way that can help us to live this life faithfully. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, I have a question for you. If this is all working. <laughs> the first thing on your handout, if you have your handout, is to think of 10 emotions that come to mind. I'm going to give you one minute. If this comes together. I'm going to give you one minute just to think. So top 10 emotions that come into your mind right away. So top 10 emotions that come to mind. Don't think about it too much, just the first 10. And then uh, later on, I'm going to reference that. So go ahead. What's that? However. That's a good emotion to be happy that you're alive. I will go with that for sure. All right. So about 10 more seconds, 15 more seconds, just the first 10 emotions that come to your mind. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. I'm going to be taking a look at fear. And it's one of those subjects that I think we think about a lot, but we don't necessarily delve into very much. And the book that I'm going to use as our backdrop is Philippians. And one of the unique things about the book of Philippians is we don't normally think of that book as one that's going to be focused very much on fear. In fact, if you've you know, done any kind of survey of the New Testament, usually the book of Philippians is talking about being humble and happy and content and joyful. That's the way we usually think of it. But I want to take a look at this book because in this book, he does address the subject of fear in maybe a way that we don't normally expect. How many of you had nightmares as a child? Okay, I won't have you raise your hands if you still have them because I think it's safe to say we all do. Right? Nightmares as a kid is just part of life, unfortunately. Uh, but when you're little and you wake up screaming in the middle of the night, how, how quickly and under what context does your fears get relieved? What has to happen? You wake up. That helps. What else? I heard something over here. You turn the light on. And if you're a real little kid, what do you call out for? Mommy. Mommy or daddy, right? And so you turn the light on. You wake up from your nightmare. You call for mom or dad. They come in. They soothe you back to sleep. They open the closet door and reveal there really is no Sully there, right? And that you're fine. It was just a bad dream. It wasn't real. And you go back to sleep. And you wake up the next day. The sun comes up. Life is good. You go to first grade. But here's the thing about life now, right, for most of us. Do those three things still work? Some fears we have, can you wake up from them? I think, unfortunately, we live now, the older you get, you wake up to your fears, not from your fears. And for some of us who fight that battle on a regular basis, you wake up to that fear every day. And the sun doesn't just, you know, light up the sky and drive your fears away. In fact, the sun means another day is bringing you closer to whatever it is you're fearing. 
So in one sense, the light doesn't work. And for most of us, calling mommy or daddy just doesn't do it. Because in some of our fears, no other person is really going to be able to solve them. No other person is going to be able to step in and tell you it's not real. Because some of our fears are real. And some of the things that we have to fear could find us, right? When we're little, our monsters lurk in the dark. You turn the light on, monsters disappear. But we live in a world now, the older we get, where fear doesn't just get relieved by lights and assurances. And so here's the subject. We all have fears. And all fear boils down to a feeling or fear of loss, losing something. How do we interact with that? How do we face that? Because our fears can all change. And one of the things that can be kind of helpful is to look around to your neighbors and say, we are all people who live with fear. Now, what we fear changes. And that's the truth of all of us, right? Because what we, what we fear to lose changes. When you're little, there's not a whole lot to lose. Not to say that their fears aren't any more real than ours. But the older you get, the more people you add to your life, the more children you have, the more money you accumulate, the closer you approach death, suddenly we have more things to lose. And our fears change. And they keep changing. But one of the things I think we have a tendency to think uh, is that the world we live in now is more fearful than the ones in the past. And I think that's not true. I think we live in a world that tells you what you should be scared of all the time. So every time you turn on the news, you are told what you should fear. And there was a, a research done not too long ago that said to every, uh, out of three news reports, two of them are going to have a negative title. Any guesses as to why? Out of three news reports, two of them are going to have a negative news report? Why two to one, negative to positive? It sells. Right? If you're, if you're flipping through the news and the title is, cute kittens all over the world are making people smile, all right? or North Korea has launched their first nuclear test, which one is more interesting, at least as far as what you're going to want to know more about? Now, as far as what you can actually do about either story, how much control do you have over North Korea? Zero. And as far as kittens, if you like that, in all reality, which one may actually brighten your day? Probably the kittens, but no one's going to turn onto that news report and listen to all the positive things in the world. In fact, we're going to be way more interested and way more tuned into what we fear. So our world is scary. But what I want to say is in the book of Philippians, I don't think our world is more scary than it's ever been. In fact, if we take a look at what's happening in Paul's life as he's writing to this church in Philippi, I think in a very real sense, we come from a long lineage of Christians who have lived in fearful times. And I think that can be helpful for us. It doesn't mean our fears are more extreme. It just means we may have more of them than they did, but we have, in one sense, no less or no more to fear than any other generation. Because Paul is talking to a group of Christians living in Rome. The life expectancy of a Roman citizen was 30 years. Now, that doesn't mean if you hit 30, you're dead. It just meant half of children before the age of 10 died. Disease was super common. War took people left, right, and sideways. And then in Rome specifically, the capital city, in the summer months, 30,000 people died out of a population of 1 million every summer. That's 3% of the Roman population died every summer. Do you know how many people died in New York City last year, roughly? 60,000 in the entire year in a city that's nine times bigger than Rome. So in one sense, they lived with fearful things all the time. Maybe, I don't want to overstate it, maybe more fearful than what we live in. Just the reality of war and disease and poverty and all the things that struck them and how common death was waiting around every single corner. 
And so again, I don't want to downplay our fears, but what I want us to do is we take a look at the book of Philippians, is to keep in mind when Paul writes to this group of Christians, he's not just giving them band-aids. They were facing some very real situations. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that they face real situations. And we, 2,000 years later, face different forms of fear, but still have fear as our driving force for many of us. And so he's going to write to them. And he's going to say, we have to address our fears. And he's going to say, if you have Christ in your life, that that makes all the difference. That that changes how we fear and what we fear. And he's going to add a new dynamic too. Because for the Philippian church, to be a Christian meant you had another set of issues coming. You could be opposed because of your faith. And so he's going to say, face it. And that having Christ in your life is going to be a helpful trait. Because we all have to face fear. And so our human condition is to be frightened. What I wanted to do is just give us the verses that Philippians deals with concerning fear. And I would recommend um, this week, if you have time, which I think it's safe to say we all do, to read through the book of Philippians. It's four chapters. In those four chapters, Paul's going to address the subject of fear or anxiety five times. So it's a pretty short book. won't take you very long. But as you get to those fear sections, it's very helpful to read around the context. So here is the first time we see fear mentioned. He tells the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 14, which I don't have on here. He tells them that because he's in prison and he's been facing his fear in an effective way, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says others are sharing the gospel fearlessly. They are not afraid because they see how I'm handling my fear in prison. We're going to come back to that one at the end. But the, the four we're going to focus on is this one right here. First one is Philippians 1, 27. And in this passage... Uh, it's, again, it's up on the screen. He says, he's telling the Philippians, contend as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened, that's our first fear, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That's his first statement when he's addressing the subject of fear. He says, don't be afraid because Christ is with you. Then he moves to the second one where he's going to address the subject of anxiety. All right, and here's what he says the second time we're going to take a look at fear. He says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him. And the him there is Epaphroditus. Now, Paul was in prison. He wasn't able to make any money. So the Philippian church sent one of their own members named Epaphroditus and with a bunch of money. And Epaphroditus made that huge journey from Philippi to Rome, gave the money to Paul. But then something happened. Epaphroditus fell sick and almost died, Paul tells us. And he says, Epaphroditus wants to stay, but then he goes on, um, that you may have gladness and that I may have less anxiety. I want to send Epaphroditus back to you. But then he goes on to say, right, this gets even harder, do not be anxious about anything. And then if we look at the fear one, he tells later in chapter two to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So now we have this weird split that Paul's setting up for us. On one hand, he says, don't be afraid of anyone, but with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. In one voice, he says, I have anxiety about Epaphroditus. And then a couple chapters later, he says, and don't be anxious about anything. So which is it, Paul? And this is where we want to try to start to dive into this subject about fear. How do we address fear? And the, the first point I want to say is that um, I did a little bit of research, a uh, recommendation of a friend of mine, Paul Maxwell. If you ever get a chance, he wrote an article on anxiety. And in that, he referenced some research that I got a hold of and actually went back and looked at. And in that, he says, um, this, this research that was done about 10 years ago said, humanity is prone to fear. We, we live by it. And so for, for Paul here, he's going to say um, to evaluate your fears. 
to face the fact that you have them, even if it's just the white noise fears that are around us every day, right? You could lose your job. You could lose a loved one. A relationship that you think is confident could fall apart tomorrow, right? Just those little white noise fears that are always in the back of our mind, and if we stop and think about it long enough, we could just spiral into to anxiety and fear. So he says, realize that they're there, but then he's going to say, fear does not have to control us, but it can very easily control us. So this research, um, there is a, it was called the fact that, oops, sorry, that good out is stronger than bad. That was the name of the title. And this is some of the things that they found. The premise of the research is that negative emotions has a more lasting and deeper impact than positive ones. And that is, is not even a one to one or a one to five ratio. So the, the research says that if you found $50, or lost $50, you would be more upset emotionally about losing the 50 than finding the 50. And that in the human language, we have 558 words for emotion, and two-thirds of them are about negative emotion. And so now I want to come back to what you guys wrote down, right? Let's just, just to see if our findings are similar to what the, the national studies show, all right? Of the top 10 words you wrote down for emotion, check off the ones that are not positive ones, the negative emotions. Just want to do a quick research here, see if it finds it. All right, so take a look at your emotions. How many of them are negative? All right, does anyone have 50-50? Got some 50-50s. Anyone have a 60-40, give or take? Six to four? All right, anyone have more negative than positive by quite a bit more? All right, good, so we're, we're about the same there. Of those emotions, how many of you had fear in the top 10? Can I get a quick show of hands? Fear in the top 10? Good. Our research is right on side with what the world tells us is normal for average people. Now, here's the crazy thing. We're Christians, or at least, you know, we espouse that, we pursue that. So you would think that our fear would be less, because how many times does the Bible tell us not to be afraid? Hundreds of times. But here's the question. Does that instantly mean we stop being fearful, just because we're told, don't be afraid? And so as we take a look at some of this, it's just helpful to know that Paul does not put a band-aid on this. He doesn't give us a simplistic answer. He does give us a very simple answer, but it is not simplistic in that it's super easy to just go and apply. And I just want us to appreciate the fact that fear is more powerful than we may give it credit for. So have you ever been in a place where you've been afraid of something, and then that, you know, you're afraid of something that could happen two weeks from now. The two weeks came and went, and the thing you feared wasn't there. How many have ever been in that place? Your fear did not happen. Okay, most of us in the room. Here's the next question. The next time something similar happened, were we less likely to be afraid because the first time that fear turned out to not be real? Fear has a grip on us. Now let's flip the question. When was the last time you were totally content and joyful in a, in a place or with a person to find out that that person betrayed you. All right? So they've been faithful and honest with you for most of the relationship, but then you find out they betrayed you once. How quickly and how long-lasting does that one failed trust issue have on you? How long does it impact you? A long time. So when our fears don't pan out, does that stop us from being afraid next time the situation arises? No. Not very often, right? It's like if I'm, a, if I'm fearful for money this year, and next year the same financial situation happens, even though my fear last year didn't happen, am I less likely to be afraid this year? No. And if a person's been faithful and told me the truth 50 times, but they break their promise one time, that one time does what? Wrecks it. 
and we have to build it back. So just this idea of fear being such a powerful thing in our lives. And Paul's going to say, if you have Christ, there is some groundwork that can start to undermine the power that fear would have in your own life. But also to keep in mind that there are two kinds of fear. All right? Fear is a false prophet. Fear will tell you the future, but then it will lie to you about that future. How many times did a, did a prophet have to get the future wrong one? Or, sorry, I just gave you the answer. Sorry. How many times did the prophet have to get the answer wrong before you stoned him? Once, right? You stoned the false prophet in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, a whole different ball game, so I'm not saying go out and stone people who tell you the future and they're wrong. Otherwise, weathermen, politicians, you know, we just stop right there, right? Just go on down the line. But in the Old Testament, if someone told you the future with conviction and said, this is what's going to happen, and it didn't happen, we called them a false prophet. They were stoned. How many times has your fear told you the future and it didn't happen? Tons. But yet, why is our fear so hard to stone? Why is it so hard to get out of our hearts and out of our minds? Now, this research is done by secular people, and so their approach is this. The reason why fear drives us is because genetically, we pass on our fear because fear helps you live in the world. Being content and peaceful doesn't help you live in a world that's not content and peaceful. Fear does. And so they're, they're secularists, they don't believe in God, but what if we throw the dynamic of sin into the equation? Then not all fear is wrong, but fear can easily be twisted by sin and become destructive and very dangerous. And that's where Paul's going to take this discussion. He's going to say there are two kinds of fears. The first kind of fear is the fear of anxiety of this world that drives us. And this is where we see that Paul's going to talk about um, anxiety, and he's going to talk about um, fe fearing Epaphroditus. And I just want us to understand there, with that passage with Epaphroditus, it's not that all fear is circumstantial only and that we should just blow it off. He says this, fear has a place in the world at times, and it can be circumstantial. It can be built on circumstances. So for Paul, he's in prison, he's having a rough time of it, and in the middle of that, his friend Epaphroditus falls sick and is dying, and he's anxious about that. Is that a sin for him to be anxious about his friend who's sick and dying? I don't think so. But can that sick, that sick friend who is going through this difficult point and Paul starts to feel anxiety, can that spin out of control in Paul's life? It definitely can and so the issue is not, is all fear something we should run away from or pretend like we don't have? I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Paul's very realistic. He's saying there are circumstances in life that are fearful circumstances. And anxiety is going to happen. The challenge is, when those points of anxiety strike, what do we do with them? Do we let them spiral out of control or do we face them? And that's hard for us because fear in us makes us want to control the circumstances. And then most of the time, putting God into that equation never even happens. So we look at fear, we look at the thing we're scared of, and what do we want to do? Control it, change it, make it so that thing that could happen won't happen. So maybe if my bank account is big enough, and maybe if I'm a helicopter parent and I hover over my children, or maybe if I invest in the right way, or if I just keep everyone at a distance so that they can't hurt me, if I never experience loss, then maybe I can get through this life without fear. But Paul's going to say, if that's the way we live, you're actually being totally controlled by your fear. It's keeping you from living a life that's effective and reaching people and doing anything good. But again, that false prophet fear 
just speaks in the back of our minds all the time. And even though we know it's not telling us the truth all the time, could it be telling us the truth some of the time? And we always remember the times that it told us something that could happen and it actually did. And Paul's facing that. He's, he's upfront about it. He says this is a difficult, weighty thing. But then we also have to add the difficulty of what he says in chapter 1. Right? He says, do not be frightened by those who oppose you. See, with a Christian, there's a whole different dynamic being added. To follow Christ means we invite trouble, satanic trouble into our lives. There's a missionary who wrote his friend, and here's what he said. Satan doesn't waste time on a lukewarm bunch. He hits good and hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. Hence the picture of Rocky and Apollo Creed. Right? If you're in the middle of just a light match and there's not anything at stake and you're just lightly slapping each other, no big deal. But everyone has watched this escalation, right? Especially if you have boys. Starts off with a light shove. And then the light shove has what happened, Hunter? Well, Hunter just elevates it straight to the punch. He says, no light shove back, punch back. And then what happens, Seth? A harder punch back. And then pretty soon, we have two people bloody and screaming. Right? Because as soon as we get that hit, we go back at it. Now, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is writing to the Philippians. And when he was in Philippi, what happened? Does anyone remember what happens in Acts 16? He drives out a demon out of a girl who is being taken advantage of by a bunch of slave owners who are using her to tell the future. The crowd gets insanely angry. They arrest him. They flog him. They beat him. They throw him in the stockades. For what? For helping out a girl in a bad situation. So no good deed goes unpunished. And so here's what Paul is saying. Opposition finds you. Now, when you are following Christ, that means you're inviting a different kind of opposition. You're inviting not just the physical forms that everyone has to face, not just the fears of this world only, but now we get the fun of adding a spiritual component to it, that Satan is now brought into this picture. And if we start to invade his territory, he's going to fight back hard. And nobody knew that better than Paul. And look what he tells the Philippians. Again, he's not casual. He's not, he's not just like simple about this. So he says, when you are, don't be frightened by those who oppose you. But then he goes on to say, Verse 29 in chapter 1. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, that's great, we love that part, believing on Jesus, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Notice what he's saying. For you following Christ, you remember what happened to me when I was in your city? Some of that stuff is starting to happen to you too. And guess what? It's been 10 years. I've been following Christ faithfully for that long. And it's still happening to me. Which means, if we keep advancing the cause of Christ the way we are commanded to, the pain and the fear and the issues that could come don't stop. There's no retirement point for the Christian when it comes to fear. If we keep doing what Christ has called us to do. Is that scary to anyone in here? And we should be. But Paul then tells them, don't be frightened. We're like, but Paul, time out. We remember your blackened body and bruised body and bleeding body when you were in our city and you tell us not to be frightened. And he says, well, let me, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. You don't have to be frightened by those who oppose you. You don't have to be scared of Satan and you don't have to be scared of the person who hates you for being a Christian. He says, you don't have to be scared of those things. But isn't it funny that when we have opposition, different things start to circle through our minds? 
like we get discouraged about the fact that we're still discouraged or for my personal one, when there's issues within our community, doesn't that have a tendency to make our fears even stronger, even higher? And so Paul is facing all these things and there's issues for sure. Paul talks about being depressed. He talks about issues where um, the church that he's working with isn't even supporting him. And he says those things add weight to us. They add fear to us. Not counting the fact that when we're doing the things in life that probably have the most eternal impact, who notices? Not a lot of people. And that can be discouraging too. So I'm working hard, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I can't even fill in the blank. And then if you add the dynamic that if I keep doing this, more bad things could happen to me, that's a scary, scary thought. And Paul recognizes that as a scary thought. Because he's going to say, as we pursue Christ, there is going to be things that are going to happen. Will you be as financially secure? God says he'll meet all of our needs, like we're going to see in the end of Philippians. But that also means you're going to have less resources at your disposal. And that's just a fact of life. And if we invest in other people, the kind of people Jesus would have us invest in are probably the ones who are hurting and more difficult to deal with. Which means after a couple hours spending time with person A, you come home feeling drained and maybe upset yourself. This is the cost. But notice what he says. There is a cost, but guess how you get to live it? With Christ beside you, you are saved. This is your confidence, and this is not the end of the picture, which then leads us into our second kind of fear. Our first kind of fear is of the world, and not all of it is sinful. It all has a tendency to lead us down sinful paths, but it's not all inherently wrong. I think that's important for us to remember. There is places and circumstances where we are afraid what we do with it matters, and here's where Paul's going to start to turn the discussion. So he talks about the anxiety of Epaphroditus. He talks about working out in a world that's scary. Don't be afraid of it. And then he's going to say, but there is a place for fear. There is a place for fear. And he says if we have the right kind of fear, it changes everything. So in chapter 1, he says, don't be frightened by those who oppose you. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. And this, is, this is, comes back to C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite lines, perhaps, in the line, The Witch and the Wardrobe. Lucy and Susan and the kids are talking to the beavers. And I'm not going to give you the whole story. Go watch the movie or read the book. Uh, book's better. But they're talking, and he, he says, Aslan's on the move. And these kids, of course, have no idea who Aslan is at the beginning. They're like, who's Aslan? And the beavers are like, oh, he's a, he's a horrific lion. And Susan said, is he a tame lion? I think I would be terribly afraid to come into the presence of a lion. Is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver says, safe? Good heavens, no, child. He's a lion. But he's good. And here's where Paul's going to start to change our understanding of fear. He says, the divine encouragement is that if we have the right kind of fear, it makes all the fears of this world start to shrink in our own minds and become less. So he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And here's what he's starting to say. He's not saying you work your salvation. He's not saying you can earn it. So that's a, that's a sermon for another time. But he says, as you're thinking through what Christ has done for you, he says, do that with fear and trembling. Because you know what you actually need to fear? Jesus says there's only one thing you need to fear. And that's God. He says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. So every horror film you've ever watched where the guy with a knife is the person to fear, he says, that should be a comedy to you. That's not scary, a guy coming at you with a knife. He says, so what should you fear? Fear the one 
who can send both soul and body to hell. Because here's what we are supposed to fear. Standing before a holy God covered in our own sin with ourselves as our representation. He says that's the thing you're supposed to fear. Standing before God on your own, covered in sin, with nothing to protect you. Now, how many of us fear that? Right? If for some reason we can go through all of our lives fearing the wrong things. So I have never had a kidney stone. I'm a, I'm a little afraid of kidney stones because I've heard how bad they are. But when my kidney tweaks for whatever reason, where does my mind go? Not to kidney stones. Because I've never had one. Now, I want to get a show of hands. Some of you have had kidney stones. Are they as horrible as they sound? People are saying yes, shaking their heads. Now, when your kidney tweaks, if you've had a kidney stone, where does your mind go? To where that could end with the pain of a kidney stone. And Jesus here is going to start to have to face this for us. You see, we only fear what we understand. And Paul is saying, you should fear something bigger than what you've ever seen in your life. You should fear standing before God. And since none of us have had to stand before God, we don't really understand what that's like. We're not really that afraid of it. Yeah, we may think about it like, well, one day I might have to get serious about that, just like the, the kidney stone fear. That may, that may come, but it's not going to control my life now. It's not going to stop me from drinking, I don't know, what's bad for you if you have kidney stones? Milk? What is it? Calcium. It's not going to stop me from drinking milk or eating ice cream. Yeah, it might catch up to me later, but I'm young. And I think we bring that same approach to God. Like, yeah, one day, one day I'm going to have to stand before him. But Paul says, that is the only thing you have to fear. And if you get that in our head, if we get that in our heads, then that changes how we see everything else. Because fearing God is kind of like flying. All right. Uh, if you're going to Bucharest, you will fly at 700 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the air. And yet, when we're on the plane, we have a tendency to get focused on all the wrong things. Because things happen on planes that are not pleasant, right? Uh, how many of you get motion sick on planes? They give you those fun throw-up bags for a reason, right? Some of us, that's just a thing. How many of you get ear pressure you just can't quite get rid of? That just is an uncomfortable point. How many of you have ever been stuck behind that screaming child or person? <laughs> My experience doesn't always have to be little kids screaming and causing fits. Those are always awkward. Right? Paper cuts off the magazines. You could spill your hot coffee all over yourself and burn yourself. My personal favorite fear of airplanes is being stuck in the coffin they call a bathroom during turbulence. <laughs> Never look forward. I'm always like, okay, it's one minute. I'm going to be in and out in one minute so I can get back to my seat before the thing just you know, flies up in the air. So we could get focused on all those little things, right? And why would we get more focused about the kids screaming? or the spilled coffee, or the earache. Because we forget what's actually happening. We're flying 700 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the air, and we're worried about paper cuts and being stuck in a bathroom during turbulence. When what should you probably actually be afraid of? Plummeting to the earth at 700 miles an hour at less than 30,000 feet. And here's the thing. God says, I have committed myself to you. The airline has committed themselves to you. The reason why very few of us are actually afraid of the falling part of flying is because it happens so rarely. And when we get on the plane to go to Bucharest for a mission trip or South America or Florida or wherever you happen to be going on a plane, you're not afraid of not getting there very often. But yet we do get bent out of shape about all the things that happen on the plane. Now, that doesn't mean the things that are happening on the plane shouldn't get your attention. 
It just means if you put it in perspective of what's happening, they should get less of your attention and maybe be less traumatic than it should be because you're flying at 700 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the air. And here's the, the spin. If we fear God and we allow him preeminence in our lives and we understand that we don't stand before him covered in our sin, then that makes the fears of what happens in this life much more manageable and much lower to the ground. And again, it doesn't mean we don't fear the loss of our children. We don't fear the loss of financial future. We don't fear the wrecked relationships that could happen. Those fears happen. Just like paper cuts happen, and spilled coffee happens, and turbulence happens, and earaches happen. But they are not the biggest thing. They are not the most real thing. And if we allow the fear of God to drive us, then that's the way of shaping how we see everything. Because fear has a tendency to make us bolt like scared horses. Sometimes horses run from real things. Sometimes they run from nothing. Because fear heightens your focus and makes you react. And sometimes the reaction is right. A bear is chasing you, should probably have that whole adrenaline kick happen. But sometimes we're afraid of things that aren't happening. And that's what Paul's trying to say. It's in those points when we're running from something that isn't even real. If we have God on the throne and we're afraid of him, the fears down here are less severe, less extreme, and less worrisome. But, but God is seeking to do something in us. He's seeking to move us from just fearing him to loving him. If all the end point was just to fear God, that's a start point. But it's not what God is ultimately after. He wants more from us. He wants us to move from fear to love. And as John would say, perfect love starts to drive out fear, starts to replace it. So there are situations in our lives where fear is the thing that will get us to do what we're supposed to do. So if my kids are playing in the street, our street's pretty deserted, but you know, if they're playing on a busier street, or our street, and the only reason why they'll get out of the street is they're afraid of me, fine, I'll take it. Ideally, what do I want though? If I say, Cayman, come here please, and he's playing in the street, if he's only coming because he doesn't want to get in trouble, again, if there's a semi coming, I'll take it, but what do I want him to come? I want him to come because I called him because he trusts me, that he would obey me out of love. And God is moving us in that place. He says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But you notice it's the beginning of wisdom. It's not the whole ball of wax. It's not the whole thing. Because fear is meant to move us to love. And as we learn to love God, it starts to replace most all kinds of fear in our lives, slowly, over time. Because the gospel is going to provide us a foundation of love. Because here's where we have something that's unique. God did not stand up in heaven saying, oh, you humans, stop being so afraid. He willingly, and this is, blows my mind, he willingly became a human and experienced fear. The fear of loss. The fear of every kind of loss. So here we have a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ is facing all kinds of losses. Is he not? He's about to lose all of his friends. He's about to be denied by one of his best friends. He's already been betrayed. He's about to lose his freedom. He's about to lose his health. He's about to lose his future. He's about to lose everything. And what is making him sweat drops of blood? The fear of what? The loss of God. The rest of those things, compared to the loss of God, small potatoes. So, he's, so he cries, he weeps, he's sweating drops of blood, capillaries are bursting under his skin, not because he's about to be crucified in the worst possible way, but the thing he's been consistently saying, who should you fear? 
Standing before God covered in your sin. And what is Jesus about to experience? Standing before God covered in sin. And it almost breaks him. He's terrified. He is afraid. And when he's on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just saying off words. He's facing his fear. And here's where the things of the gospel start to come into our lives. He had to do that solo. He did it on his own. The fear that we're supposed to fear, life without God, he had life without God. So that we can go through our fears, never having to live those fears without God. He was alone, and we won't ever be alone. And that starts to give us something to stand on when fear starts to come and speak those lies to us. Because fear is going to come and tell us all kinds of things that are not true. And one of the biggest fears is that we will be alone through our trials and through our losses. And here is where the cross comes in and says, no, you won't. It doesn't mean you won't go through fear and loss and anguish, but you'll never have to do it alone. Because Christ entered into this world to face fear, to understand it. And not just so that he could understand humanity. And here's where Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 3, Christ came into the world to understand us, but to also help us. Because here's what Paul says in Philippians 3. Um, I love these verses. Verse 10. Here's what Paul says. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Plural. Sufferings. I can know Christ by sharing in his fears. So when I'm afraid and anxious, guess what? That's a tool that can help me know Christ. And share with Christ. And he's choosing to share with us. You see how the gospel can change how we see fear? Our heart rate doesn't have to spike as much when bad things happen. So Paul's going to start to lay out for us. How do we then, with the gospel, armed with the gospel, start to wade into the fears that are going to strike us? Because we know it's going to happen, whether today or tomorrow. So practical considerations for us. So Paul's going to say... In chapter 4, verse 4, um, Rejoice in the Lord, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's one of our first, first defenses, is to understand that we don't have to be anxious because the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is available to you. And I love that Paul doesn't say, be disciplined, be self-controlled, tell those fears to go back where they came from, put your hands on your hips and be tough. That's not what he says. I love that he doesn't say that. What he says is, in Christ Jesus there is peace that surpasses understanding. Because in Christ he came to identify in Christ he came to offer us his strength. So that he's abandoned, and there's like the pictures of his disciples sleeping while he's awake. And so when we find ourselves abandoned by the people around us and things aren't going well, Christ says, I understand and I'm there. I understand and I'm there. And our anxiety and our fears are a means by which we can come close to Christ and identify with him. And so when you're afraid next time, if you can get past the emotion of the fear... Next time you're afraid, what if you could look to God and say, God, is this how you felt? I think I understand a little, little bit of the cross and Gethsemane. Can you draw near to me, please? And I'm going to try to draw near to you. 
please draw near to me as I draw near to you. If we can get that prayer out of our lips and not just the spiked heart rate and planning and figuring out how to avoid loss and how to get out of fear, maybe Christ will actually come near to us. Maybe he really will give us the strength that he promises is available to us to become like him in his death so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That I may know Christ in his sufferings, but here's the blessing, I get to know him in his resurrection. Because I think it's safe to say fear dies when we do. We stand before Christ realizing we're perfect in him, fear's gone. And that fear on earth that sometimes drives us to do the right thing will be fully replaced with love as we seek to understand all that he did for us. The second thing, our fears can be eased out of the center stage of our life. They can be eased off into the corner when we start to think about what our future actually holds. So in chapter 1 of Philippians, he says, Don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign. They will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. Our future is secure. Our future is salvation. He also goes on to say uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, though, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, I love the second verse, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is with you, working in you. It's not you get your act together, figure out salvation. It's God's coming in and working right alongside you to will and to act, to change how you are. You are not alone. So our future is a presence that's already started. God is with us and moving in and through us. It's God is not passive in our fears. He's not just sitting back waiting for us to not be afraid. He chooses to come right in and start working with us. In chapter 3, he says we have the resurrection to look forward to. That's our future. His resurrected body is the picture of what we will one day have. And that's coming. It's secure. And if we start to think about that future and not just the future that the fear is telling us to worry about, we move beyond the fear that's for next week to seeing God 70 years from now, it changes how we see that fear that's in between those two resurrection points. And lastly, in chapter 4, we read this um, together as a, as a congregation. He says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's not far. He's at hand. He's right beside you in the midst of it all. And then in verse 19, he goes on to say, and my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus that what you need, he will provide. Now, not always the way we see it, not always the way we would define it, but he says God will always meet your needs. So our future, as we think about the true future that can help us face our fears and be able to overcome. Number three, is it possible that the way we handle our fear can serve as a testimony to other people? So in chapter one of Philippians, he says, my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel by helping people who would have probably been afraid are now preaching without fear because they see how I'm handling my fear. It gives them boldness and fearlessness to preach the gospel as they should. But he's also thinking back, I think, to, Philipp to, to the church in Philippi. In Acts 16, after being flogged, after being thrown in prison, an earthquake happens. You know, can you imagine being inside a prison, in the center of the prison, and an earthquake happens? <laughs> like, is there anything more horrifying than being buried alive while you're bound? Like, pretty terrifying. And yet, what does the Bible tell us Paul and Silas are doing in this point? Singing and praising God in the middle of the night. And when all the prisoners could have run away, Paul and Silas somehow keep them all together. And what does the Philippian jailer do? He runs over to him and says, 
what must I do to be saved? The way that I see you handling your fears, the way you have a future that's bigger than your present, there is something there that I don't get. And the Philippian jailer gets saved because of the way that Paul handled his fears. Is it possible that fear serves as a testimony to the watching world, right? I just got done saying that all of us live in fear. And we hear about the things we should be afraid of all the time. But what if Christians, what if we didn't have fear be the thing that drives us to do what we do? What if we really did have a confidence in something bigger than this world? Could there be, could there be Philippian jailers in your life? Some of them persecuting you, right? The jailer did more to Paul than he had to. All the jailer was told was to keep an eye on him. And what does he do? Stockades him in the inner cell of the prison. He takes it to a whole other level. And yet at this point, when he has to face his fear of being judged for letting all these prisoners escape, he sees Paul, he sees the way that Paul handled his fear, and he's like, how do I get saved? And that Philippian jailer becomes a key point person in that church. So how do you face your fears? And what are other people seeing as you face your fears? Are they seeing a confidence in Christ even though you're scared, even though you're anxious, you're driving through it? If so, who knows what people around you are going to say one day. And lastly, we have to preach to ourselves over and over and over again. In chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. Paul is in his 60s by this point. He says, it has taken me 30 years or more, but I have learned the secret of being content. I have learned how to face my fears. I have learned how anxiety does not have to drive me. But I just want you to notice it's a learning thing that takes time. Probably the most famous set of verses about facing your fears and preaching to yourself comes out of Psalm 42 and 43. Those two psalms should probably be put together. Three different times he says, why are you downcast within me, O my soul? Trust in God. But does it work the first time? No. If it worked the first time, the psalm would end at like verse 5. But he's like, nope, my soul is still all twisted inside of me. I'm still terrified. I'm still living in fear. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Trust in God. Didn't work the second time either because he has to go through it again in the chapter 43 and he says it a third time. We have to consistently preach the truth because learning doesn't happen with a one statement and then you're done. Learning happens by repetition. And so as we face our fears... It's good to remember, it may take us decades to see growth in this area for some of us. And that's okay. But we still want to stand up, face the fear, and say, you do not have to be downcast soul. You do not have to be anxious. You do not have to be afraid. You have a God who's right beside you. Trust in God. And your soul may lie to you and be like, no, you can't. You can't, you can't, you can't. But you stand up and say it again the next time, and the next time, and the next time until slowly your soul is brought underneath of the control of Christ. Don't be afraid. I want to end with two verses. In chapter 1, Paul says, let me pray for you, Philippian church. And I want you, to, if you have your Bibles, to turn there. Chapter 1, verse 9. I think it's very helpful to end this in how Paul prayed for this congregation. He prays for them very specifically. He says this, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Notice what he prayed for them. 
that their love would grow. That as love grows within us, fear loses its power. So for this congregation and all the issues that they had to face, he said, you know what I'm praying for you guys for? Is that your love will grow in knowledge and depth of insight. If that starts to happen, your fears will start to fade. Your anxiety will start to fade. Your, your worries will start to fade. And your life will have righteous fruit growing in you. And so maybe the last point here for us to think through is that when we are afraid, instead of praying that our fears would go away, maybe we pray, Lord, help me grow in love for you and for others. And maybe by some weird reversal, by growing in love, our fears will actually start to shrink and become less powerful in our lives as love grows more powerful in our lives. Because perfect love drives out fear. And what if that could start to happen in the fears in our world around us? So let's keep fighting. Let's keep moving forward. Let's not be too worried if it takes us longer to grow in this area than we expect, but let us never stop fighting that fear. May we never just bow down to it and let fear drive us wherever it wants to take us. It is the human condition to be afraid, but it doesn't have to be that if we have a God who's come down close to walk beside us. If you would join me in prayer. Lord, we want to be people who grow in love in knowledge, and in depth of insight. Well, we can't do it on our own. Our human nature and our desire to fear is more powerful than us and our self-control and our, dis our discipline. But we thank you that it is not more powerful than you and that you came into this world to face fear to give us the strength to be able to do the same. May we live this life with you as our focus. And as we're flying through this life at 3,000 feet at 700 miles an hour, we would be able to keep in mind our fear of you and that that would be replaced more and more increasingly by a desire to love and obey you. And until we stand on the other side of this life with you, seeing and not having to live by faith, may we continue to give you glory and honor to the best of our ability. In your name we pray. Amen.